Psalm 119, verse 81, 81 to 88. My soul languishes for your salvation. I wait for your word. My eyes fail with longing for your word, while I say, When will you comfort me? Though I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget your statutes. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? The arrogant have dug pits for me, men who are not in accord with your law. All your commandments are faithful. They have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. They almost destroyed me on earth. But as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. Revive me according to your loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Our Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to meditate on this truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is your word, and it is the word that gives us a hope, a future. It gives us comfort and consolation, no matter what we experience. We pray, Lord, that today you will help us to understand better that we need to desire you, desire your word, and to trust you in the midst of afflictions and persecutions. Help us to understand this truth better, for we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, this passage does have several verses, especially in the middle, that deal with the persecution of the faithful, the persecution of believers. And the first part and the last part deal with how to express ourselves and how to manage in the midst of persecution. This passage, I'm afraid, is strange to most people. To most people who attend church, to most people who are in Christian churches and denominations, this passage is something that's unknown to them and unusual and strange to them because they don't experience persecution. For most people, when they hear David write like this and pray like this, not only in this passage, but in many of the Psalms, what they read David saying about himself, about his circumstances, about his enemies, about his numerous enemies, even before, uh, before he was king, but also after he was king, in both circumstances, the things that David says are quite unusual to many of us. They're unusual because we do not live for righteousness' sake. If we were to live for righteousness' sake, both in what we believe, how we conduct our life, how we conduct our life in our families, how we conduct our life in the workplace, in school, wherever we go, if we were to stand up and conduct our life circumspectly, to walk courageously in the path of Christ wherever we go, then we would understand what David is saying. Then we would know, and then we would want to pray just as David prays. Then when we read these kinds of scriptures, such as verse 83, I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. A wineskin in the smoke that's being dried and shriveled up and burned. That's the way he feels as he's being persecuted. When was the last time that the people of God who named the name of Christ felt this way? But David felt this way. He felt this way because he had many people who were attacking him, many people who wanted to undermine him and dethrone him. Even his own son, Absalom, wanted to do so. And other ones, like Adonijah, wanted to usurp the throne that did not belong 
to him about the time of the death of David. David experienced these things, both inside, among those people who knew him intimately in his own family, and those people on the outside. He had many, many enemies. Why? Because he lived for Christ. He lived for righteousness. He depended on eternal life. He depended on God, and he did not want to compromise. No, he was not a perfect man, but he was a righteous man, and he did know Christ, and he was redeemed. And this is the kind of prayer he prays. He prays this way because he lived a life this way. He lived a faithful life, generally speaking. Let's see what he says. Verse 81. My soul languishes for your salvation. I hope for your word. This is a truth that should be generally true of us, but in this case, he is saying this because he's trying to alert us to the fact that he's going to pray about his persecutors, his persecution, and even in the midst of his persecution, he keeps his soul languishing for God's salvation. He wants God's salvation. He does not want to experience all of the trials and tribulations of this world. He doesn't want the gossip and the slander of his enemies to come to him and to impact him. So what does he do? Instead of focusing on that, he languishes, he longs for the salvation of God, and he puts his hope in the Word of God. He's saying, I want to be delivered from this present evil age, and I want to focus on you, Lord. I want to think about your salvation, and I long to experience your salvation. As long as I'm in this world, I'll be faithful, but I'm putting my hope and my trust in the world to come. He's saying like Paul does in, in Philippians 1, 21-25, I long to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. He longs to depart and be with Christ. He wants the full experience of salvation. He wants to be in the presence of God forever and ever. And this he does by waiting for or hoping in God's Word. He hopes in the Word of God. He puts his trust in the promises of God because when he puts his promise of trust in the promises of God, it makes him think of the world to come. It makes him think of the fact that this is worth it. It's worth it to experience afflictions and persecutions now because I'm not living for now. I'm living for the world to come. I put my hope in the world to come. I don't need these people to love me and to like me. I don't need them to flatter me. I don't need them to give me their money. I don't need them to prop me up and to put me on a pedestal. I don't need any of those things because I wait for, I hope for the promises that are found in your word. That's what I want. I want to have full confidence and full comfort that comes from focusing on your salvation and the word of God that tells me about that salvation. I will live for eternity. Verse 82. My eyes fail with longing for your word while I say, when will you comfort me? He spoke of his soul, of his inner self. Now he speaks of his eyes as a manifestation that he has in his eyes, in, in, in his tears, he fails with longing for your word. His eyes long for and want what's in his word. He wants to read, he wants to meditate, he wants to memorize, he wants to know the word inside and out because when he's in the word of God, then he sees his world in proper perspective. When he sees the word, then he can understand and see the world with the proper perspective. The word of God is his lens for seeing the, word, uh, the world. And 
Meantime, he's saying, while I say, when will you comfort me? Here again, he's longing for that salvation to come and inklings of that salvation and foretastes of that salvation right now. When I read the Word of God, when we read it and our eyes fail with longing for the Word of God, then inevitably we think about unseen things. We think about things that are forever, things that are spiritual, things that are related to God and His salvation. When we read this Word, we will long for the comfort that comes from, from, for those who believe in this word. When we read this word, we'll get comfort and we'll ask God, when will you comfort me? Which sometimes he'll give us now. He'll give us now. He gives us a reprieve from the tribulations of the world by his comfort. He helps us even in the midst of those tribulations and persecutions. He helps us to withstand to remain strong and fortified because we trust in His promises, we trust in His Word, and He gives us comfort. Comfort that comes knowing that we are in the will of God, we are doing the will of God. That's what we need. We need this kind. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We have this hope And we have this comfort, we have this longing, because we are familiar with the Word of God. Whatever was written in earlier times, Romans 15, 4, the Old Testament, whatever whatever was written in the Old Testament in describing the righteous and the wicked was written for our encouragement, for our perseverance, for our hope. This is where we get it. And this is what makes us call out to God and ask Him to comfort us. Verse 83. Though I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget your statutes. A wineskin in the smoke, this leather bottle that's used for wine, if it's in the, in the fire and in the smoke of the fire, it's going to be ruined. And this is what he feels like. He feels like, as a man, as a man of God, who's attempting to live according to the Word of God, he feels like he's a wineskin in this smoky fire that's being ruined and destroyed. He feels like this is what his life is like. This is the way his persecutors are treating him. They are treating him with a mistreatment. Nobody properly puts wineskin in a fiery smoke. No, nobody does that. Nobody puts wineskin in the fire like, like that. But the persecutors treat us that way. But what should we do? When our persecutors do that to us, He says, I do not forget your statutes. What drives him is not retaliation against his persecutors. What drives him is not vengeance against his persecutors, not personal vengeance against them. What drives him is not the the sight of looking at them in misery. That's not what drives him. What drives him is the Word of God. Those things drive him not to forget the Word of God, His statutes. He goes to the Bible to say, what does God say about this? How should I respond to this? What does God think of them? What will God do to them in due time? What is it that I should do meantime? He doesn't forget the statutes of God. Whenever afflictions come, whenever persecutions come, it makes him think, what does the Bible say? He doesn't forget the Bible, he remembers the Bible and acts accordingly. This is what we read in Psalm 59. In Psalm 59, David asserts that he did not do anything wrong. 
And he had to conclude that by examining his life according to the scriptures. He has persecutors all around him, and he says in Psalm 59, 3, Not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord, for no guilt of mine, they run and set themselves against me. It's not because I did something wrong, and how does he know he didn't do anything wrong? Because he examined his words, he examined his actions, he examined whatever his persecutors are saying in the light of the word of God. Then he can say, I do not forget your statutes, and I am living according to your will. It wasn't because of my sin that I'm persecuted, but it's because of their sin and their selfish ambitions that this is happening. Peter tells us that this is what we ought to do. We ought to, if we're going to be persecuted, be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. In 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, he exhorts us to be obedient children. In 1 Peter 1, 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. He exhorts us to holiness. And then he says, in chapter 2, verse 12, we'll start in verse 11. Chapter 2, 11, Behold, or beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Don't practice wickedness, practice righteousness, and then when they slander you as though you're doing evil by doing righteousness, on the day of visitation, on the day of judgment, God will take care of it. They will glorify God because of our good deeds. 1 Peter 2, he continues. 1 Peter 2, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If, for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Here he tells the servants, obey your masters, do what's right, do righteousness, and then if you suffer, you'll be blessed by God. You'll find favor with God. Not if you do evil. If you do evil and you're punished, what's the, what's the point of complaining about that? There's no point in that. 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, 16. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Here again, keep a good conscience. Know that your behavior is good in Christ, and you will put those others to shame. And it's better to suffer for doing what's right than for doing what's wrong. Peter's not finished. 1 Peter chapter 4, he continues by saying, 1 Peter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. 
so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation or lack of self-control, and they malign you. But they shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We used to be this way, but we're not that way anymore. And then they malign us for not behaving like them, he says. But we're doing righteousness, and they will in due time have uh, accountability before God on the day of judgment. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. Peter reiterates again and again, just as David does, that he is suffering not because he's forgetting the Bible, not because he is living contrary to the Bible, but because he's living in accordance with the Bible. That's why he's suffering. He's suffering because he's living a holy life. This is the way it should be. We should not complain when we suffer for our punishment. But we should trust God and conform our life to the Word of God when we suffer because of righteousness' sake. Psalm 119, verse 84. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? He wonders how many days longer he's going to suffer this persecution. He's not wondering how much longer he's going to live necessarily, but when is it that you, God, are going to act? When is it that you're going to intervene on my behalf? When is it that you're going to assist me and deliver me from my persecutors? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? We note here that David does not retaliate. He's not seeking personal vengeance and retaliation. We know that David throughout his life practiced this. Two primary examples deal with King Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 24 and in 1 Samuel chapter 26, David had Saul right before him. He could have executed Saul right then. He could have taken away Saul's life because Saul and his men were shirking their responsibilities. They were a bit derelict in their duties. And they exposed Saul to David and David's men. But David said to his men, I'm not going to touch him. I'm not going to kill him. He wants to kill me. That's why he's out here. I'm not going to, though, in personal retaliation, murder him. I'm not going to do that. He wants to do that to me, but I will not to him. And in this way, when he says, when will you, when will you, Lord, execute judgment on my persecutors, 
This is, in fact, what he was doing with King Saul. With King Saul, in 1 Samuel 24, he's telling Saul, I had the opportunity, but I restrained myself. I had the opportunity, but I didn't kill you. But what does he say? 1 Samuel 24, 12, he says, May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. And verse 15, The Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me. And may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. He didn't seek personal retaliation. And instead he said to Saul, even to Saul's face in, in, and in his hearing, I'm not going to do it against you, but I'm going to wait for God to execute judgment on you. This is what the Apostle Paul also meant in Romans chapter 12, Romans 12, verse 17. 12, 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The apostle is teaching the same thing. Trust God and wait for God to execute vengeance on those who persecute us. That's what we should do. We have to restrain ourselves and put hope in the purposes of God and the plan of God for our life. Sometimes we will see that God executes vengeance in this life. At other times we may never see it, but we will experience it on the day of judgment. And in fact, on that day of judgment, God will use us to judge our enemies. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 1 Corinthians 6.2. Do you not know? Don't you know that? Even if He doesn't show us that vengeance now, He will show us that vengeance and use us as His instruments and agents of vengeance on our persecutors on the day of judgment. Verse 85. The arrogant have dug pits for me, men who are not in accord with your law. The arrogant have dug pits for me. They set up these traps. They want to entice him. They want to lure him and make him fall into pits. Now, this could be literal pits, but also figurative pits. It happens in both ways. They seek to harm us physically, but also spiritually. The, these people are arrogant people. They want to do their own will. They don't want to do the will of God. They don't humble themselves before God. They don't submit to the word of God. They invent their own evil devices to pursue those things which attack the men of God, the messengers of God, the people of God. They attack the innocent, the righteous. This is what they do. They are arrogant people. They are full of themselves. They don't think about others and others' benefit and others' safety. They only think about what's going to help them and pursue their own selfish and devilish ambitions. And he describes them as being not in accord with your law. They don't act in accordance with the law of God, with the word of God. They act in accordance with their own wisdom 
with their own inventions, with their own devices. They pursue their own wickedness. They don't want to have anything to do with the Bible. They shirk the burden, the light burden of the Bible, and they want to be enslaved with their own lusts, their own desires, their own goals against the people of God. They don't live in accordance with the law of God. This teaches us here that we can know that people are arrogant and harmful and destructive towards us if they don't act according to the Bible. When they don't act according to the Bible, and we want to act according to the Bible, we can know there's a distinction. They cannot be claiming to belong to God. They cannot be claiming to love us and care for us. They cannot be claiming to do things that are beneficial to us, even though they say it with a smile, even though they say it with, with, uh, with flattery, even though they say it with many other devices intended to disarm us, even though they say those kinds of things, we know that when they are acting contrary to the Bible, it doesn't matter what they say to us, it doesn't matter what they do to us, they are arrogant people who are digging pits to destroy us. We have to keep that in mind. We cannot be duped into thinking that these people who don't act and talk according to the Bible, they still have good intentions. They're still good people. They're still genuine people. They're still authentic. How can we say that they are sinning? Well, the Bible describes them as sinning. It says that they are arrogant people, and they show it by their actions in digging pits. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what they do. If they're saying and doing things that are contrary to the Scriptures, then they are not real people. They're not righteous people, real in the Christian sense. They're not that kind of people. They are men who disobey the Word of God. Verse 86. All your commandments are faithful. They have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. The translation may be faithful or true or trustworthy in verse 86. All your commandments are faithful or trustworthy. All the commandments of God, we have to keep this also before us. All of God's commandments, sometimes in the midst of persecution, in the midst of these afflictions, when people are saying all kinds of nasty and dirty things against us, we might think that they are right and the commandments of God, or some of the commandments of God, are wrong. They're untrustworthy. They're unfaithful. We can trust some of them, but not all of them. But David is resolved. David is determined to say, No, I trust every single commandment of God, and I'm not going to undermine any part of it for the sake of flattery and for the sake of peace with those people who are working against me. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stay faithful to the Bible, and I don't care what those other people say. I don't care. Your word is faithful. They are unfaithful. Your word is trustworthy. They are untrustworthy. Your word is true. They are false and liars. As he says, they have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. They say things that may sound good, but are false. They say things that on the surface are pleasant, are happy, are seeking peace and reconciliation, but that's not true. They say things that are actually lies, and with those lies, they persecute us, the people of God. They are persecutors the moment 
they say or do anything that undermines any commandment of God and that brings any doubt, a cloud of doubt, on anything that is faithful and true in the Bible. Whenever they do all of that, they are persecutors, whether they admit it or not, whether they declare it or not. Even if they say they are our friends, they are our brothers, we're, we're, we're in this together, and everything like that. That's what they do. But actually, they are persecutors spewing lies. Help me. Again, he pleads with God. He knows that he's in a situation where there is lies and deception. There's confusion. There's darkness and muddiness everywhere. And it's hard to figure out sometimes who's telling the truth, how, how to assess what's in the Bible, how to assess their slanders, how to know what's true and what's false. And where does he go? He doesn't walk away from God. He doesn't walk away from the faith. He doesn't throw away the Bible. He doesn't attack other people who are seeking to be faithful. He merely and simply cries out to God for help. Lord, help me work through this. Lord, help me deal with this confusion. Lord, help me. They have thrown all of the, this deceit and lies into the mix, and now I have to sort it all out, and I have to help the people sort it all out. Help me. That's what we should do. Go straight to God and not be disheartened, not give up the faith, not walk away from Christ, not compromise the truth of the gospel, remain faithful in the gospel. Verse 87. To what extent? Verse 87 explains, They almost destroyed me on earth, but as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. They almost destroyed me on earth, comparing it to heaven. Now, in this temporary life, they were so persecuting him that they were very, very close to killing him, to destroying him. We know that when David and Saul were together and in the same room that when an evil spirit came upon Saul that he took up his spear and he flung it and he also he tried to, to hit David with it. David escaped. He escaped and he ran. This is the kind of thing he's talking about. They almost destroyed me. Even Absalom, his own son, was seeking to undermine David and to, to destroy him. And, and he rallied a bunch of rebels in order to undermine David and to destroy him. David had to flee Jerusalem. He had to flee because Absalom had come into the city with his men and almost destroyed David. These are the, uh, a couple of the many times in which David was almost destroyed. But what did David do? But as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. He repeats what he said earlier, that even though it was perilous to him, even though his life was threatened, he did not walk away from God. He followed the word of God. He didn't forsake. He did not turn away from obedience to God. He kept faithful. This is what Jesus taught us to do as well. Jesus taught us to do this in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, he taught us to remain faithful faithful and to be encouraged. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He calls us blessed. He says in verse 10, blessed are you. Verse 11, blessed are you. And in verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Because we have a great reward. And we're not the only ones, and we're not the first ones to be treated this way. The prophets were treated. They were seeking to live righteously, and they were persecuted. But what do we have before us? We have the kingdom of heaven before us. He tells us again in terms of being exposed to death. In Matthew 10, Jesus continues on this topic of persecution. He says in Matthew 10, 24, A a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become as his teacher and the slave as his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Therefore do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus teaches us, as his disciple and as his slave, we're no better than he. If they mistreated him and they called him a devil or the devil, Beelzebul, if they called him Satan, how much more will they mistreat us? Certainly they will mistreat us. And therefore, do not be afraid. Therefore, expose what is happening. And in fact, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Even though we are near death, Even though that is a potential, do not recant. Do not say Christ is no God. Do not say He is not my Lord. Do not walk away from Him and fall away. Do not do any of those things. Keep in mind that God has the ability to destroy anyone in hell. He not only can destroy the body, but also destroy the soul. The people who persecute us, who slander us, The most that they can do is torment our body and snuff out our body, our life. That's what they can do. That is bad, yes. But don't look at that. Look at it in comparison to eternity. Those persecutors will be thrown into hell. Their souls and bodies will go into hell forever and ever. And no relief. But for us, we will be delivered. God cares for us more than sparrows. He cares for our hair. He knows they are all numbered. He knows about them. We're of more value than many sparrows. And keep in mind, if we maintain a confession of faith in Christ, even in the face of death, Christ will confess us before His Father. That's what we need. That's what we want. We don't want Christ to deny us 
before the Heavenly Father. If we deny Him now, He will deny us before the Father. We deny Him right now before earthly men. The most that they can do is kill us. But Christ will deny us before the heavenly judge. And He will kill us and destroy us and torment us forever and ever. This is what we have to keep in mind. And this is why David, though they almost destroyed me on earth, but as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. He maintained his confession of faith. He was resolved to put his faith and keep his faith in Christ until the very end. Remember, even the Apostle Paul, when he was about to die, he was about to be executed in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18. He says, But God will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. God will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. David had this in mind. Then finally, in verse 88, Psalm 119, verse 88, Revive me according to your loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. He wants a revival. He wants to be renewed and strengthened. He wants to be fortified in the faith even more, according to the love of God. The love of God is immense. The love of God goes from love to love, just as faith goes from faith to faith. His love goes from a gradual smaller level to a greater and greater level. This is what the Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 3, that the love of God, which is beyond comprehension, might increase in us, might increase inside of us, and be manifested in our life. This is the love that He wants in us to radiate from within and dominate all of us. And for what purpose? So that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. He wants more of the love of God so that he can be more faithful to God and His Word. He doesn't want the love of God for selfish purposes. He's not just thinking about his own uh, life and comfort. He's thinking about loving and being faithful to God. We have this in Romans chapter 8. The last part of Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul echoes these same truths that we have this mixture of being faithful to God by, through His Word and His love. We have His love that keeps us faithful and His love assures us and strengthens us in the midst of affliction. Romans 8.31 8.31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely or generously Give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Paul, Jesus, David, 
all of the faithful of, of the past and all of the faithful throughout the ages from the time of the New Testament. They had these truths in mind. They knew that because of God's love toward us, that that love was an inseparable love. And they knew that they could face anything. They could face the slanders of their persecutors. They could face the, the trials, the usual trials of life. They could face all of this because their hope was not here. Their hope was there. Their hope was not the earth. Their hope was heaven. Their hope was not people here on this earth, but of the Prince of Peace and heaven. This is where their hope was. And they sought to live faithfully according to the Word of God. They didn't let any of their persecutors or any of their afflictions distract them, make them anxious, make them give up the faith and walk away from it. They went straight ahead. They persevered. They went, they ran the race with endurance. They knew that Jesus went ahead. Now we should go ahead. He is our forerunner. He is the author and perfecter of faith. He is the one who gives us our salvation and he is the one who will meet us with full salvation when we pass from this life to the next. Let's do the same. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Our Father, we pray that you'll grant us more grace, more love, more mercy, that we might live faithfully before you. No matter what people say, no matter what we hear, no matter what our circumstances are, give us hope and comfort and guide us until we see you face to face. In Christ, amen.